Where are my list makers? You make lists, you check boxes, you cross things off. <clears throat> yes. Um, of my list makers, how many of you are list makers who make them in daytimers or planners or notebooks? Like you have a place for your list. Is that you? Yes, God bless you. Uh, how many of you list makers are any scrap piece of paper will do? I just grab what, yeah, okay, all right. Here. Uh, and the rest of you are just not list makers at all, uh, which, is, which is fine, which is fine. Uh, lists can help us. Uh, lists list help us stay on task, right, because all our minds tend to wander, like we tend to get off task. Uh, um, our, we, we get drawn away from what we're supposed to be doing. It's a great thing about having a list, because when your mind starts to wander, you just come back to the list, right? You know what the next thing is. Uh, list making is about pre-deciding, like I'm, I'm going to pre-decide how I'm going to spend this day or this week. Uh, the, I have 16 hours, so it's kind of a priority thing. I have 16 hours, waking hours tomorrow, here's how I'm going to spend it. Or I have eight hours in the office tomorrow, here are the things that I'm going to get, get done. Um, especially if you order your list, anybody order your list, like what you're going to do first, second, third, Uh, I was in time management course years ago, and this particular approach suggested that you prioritize your your list, make your list, and then prioritize it according to A's, B's, and C's. So for me, A's were everything that has to get done before I go home today. Like, I can't turn the light off in the office and walk out the door until this set of things get done. And then B's were... Things that I, I probably should do today, but the world won't end if I do them tomorrow. And then C's were anything that could get done later in the week or next week. Long-term planning, still really important things, but they don't have to be done right now. So this time management course su- suggested that you prioritize A, B, C, and then you go back and number each of those sections. So you have A1, A2, A3, A4, according to the order that you're going to uh, accomplish all of those items on your to-do list. To-do list, are, they're helpful. List in general, they're help. they help you prioritize, help you stay on task. Uh, they help you remember. Anybody have trouble remembering like what you're supposed to do? Like you meant to do this and you, you didn't put on the list, so you forgot Lists are great for helping you to remember. Uh, for example, wives, would any of you send your husband to the grocery store without a list? Uh, you're playing with fire at that point, right? I mean, if you just want us in general to buy groceries, don't send us with a list. Like We can fill up a cart with groceries if you just send us. But if you specifically want spaghetti noodles and we need shampoo and coffee creamer, you better put it on a list uh, because our minds tend to wander once we get in the aisle and we see all sorts of things that we want in our, in our bucket. So lists are, are great. For the next seven Sundays, we're going to talk about a specific list that I'm going to introduce to you in just a minute, um, a specific list of qualities, maybe uh, we could say. And by the way, this series is going to take us through Palm Sunday. Can you believe sevens counting today? We're six weeks away from Palm Sunday. We're seven weeks away from Easter. Uh, still being ravaged by the flu. Like we're happy that Easter is only seven weeks away. Maybe everybody can get well. 
So for the next seven Sundays counting today, we're going to look at this particular list. Now, let me give you some context for the list. Let me give you some history of the list. The list originated right at the end of the 4th century, 390 A.D., right at the end of the 4th century. Uh, A church leader organized this list. And then over the next 200 years, the list got tweaked and some, some items got combined and some, used some different words. And so about the 7th century, 600 A.D. in that time range, uh, this list became formalized into what we have now. We call this list <clears throat> in Christian world, we call it the seven deadly sins. And some of you may have heard that. Some of you may have not. But that's the title of this specific list. The seven deadly sins started 15, 1,600 years ago. So it's an ancient list. It's been around a really long time. People have been considering this list for a really long time. Now, some of you are Bible students, and you're sort of doing the math in your head, and you're thinking, okay, 4th century, 7th century, like the Bible was already done by then. Like, there weren't any books written in the 4th century in the Bible, and there weren't any books of the Bible written in the 7th century, and you're exactly right. You win the prize. Um, this list, as a list, doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible. I can't tell you, go to this book of the Bible and this chapter, and voila, there's the seven deadly sin list. However... Every item on the list is discussed in the Bible. And every item in the list is a sin in the Bible. And that's sort of where we're going to launch our discussion from is what does the Bible say about these seven items? And to, to help, us, help us get there, I, again, I want to give you just a little bit of background on this list. Why would somebody put this list together? What was the motivation for this list. Well, one motivation was that this list would be a reminder to followers of Jesus. That they could come to this list and they could be reminded <clears throat> what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it looks like when I get away from following Jesus. Like, what are the things that I need to keep out of my life that I need to say no to? This list of seven items became that reminder for believers, especially in the early centuries around the beginning of what we call the Dark Ages. That's when this list came to be as a good reminder. Another reason for this list is to be memorable. We said, like with other lists, so that people wouldn't forget. As a good reminder, as a, as a good way to memorize what is important in my faith, in, in my walk with Jesus. We're, we live in a time where people don't memorize things very much anymore. I don't know if you've noticed this. Anybody memorize phone numbers anymore? You, you maybe know one, or two. some of us don't even know our own phone number, right? Because why? We just pull up our contact list and, and we push a name, or we say, Siri, call mom, right? And Siri does all the work for us. There's no need to memorize. I, I do know my wife's cell phone number. Uh, I have three daughters. I pay for, there are three phones. I, 
I could not tell you any number that's in their phone number right now. Like not, not combined, like any number. There may be a three in one of them. I don't know. Um, we don't memorize things anymore because we have Google and Wikipedia. We just Google it, right? Some of you have already Googled seven deadly sins. Like you're jumping way ahead of us, right? We don't have to memorize. We don't have to learn things. We have Alexa. Uh, we have Siri. Things were different at the beginning of the Dark Ages. I don't know if you know that or not, but there was an Alexa in the 4th century. Uh, there wasn't Siri in the 7th century. There was no Google. There was no Wikipedia. There was no Internet. And so the church in particular, uh, uh, along with all of culture, but we're talking specifically about the church, the church had to find ways to implant teaching and theology and doctrine into the lives of its people. There wasn't even a printing press, right? Printing press doesn't come along for about a thousand years after the fourth century. So there's no books, there's no writings, there, um, everything's copied by hand. And, and even if there were a printing press, a lot of people didn't read, they didn't write. So now the church is left with, how do we teach correct belief? How do we teach the things of the Bible when our people can't leave with version on their phone and just pull up any translation of the Bible they want on version, So the church came up with memorable ways of saying things and then teaching the people to, to memorize that, to internalize it. This is where the creeds come from in some aspects, right? The early creeds of the church, you maybe you're familiar with them, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Uh, the early creeds of the church were for two purposes. One was to define this is what Christianity teaches. This is what the Bible teaches surrounded by all kinds of belief systems and, and sort of offshoots of Christianity that were, were muddying the waters of what Christianity taught. So the church came up with creeds to say, no, this is what Christianity teaches. And then they taught their people to memorize it. If you went to church in the 4th century or the 6th century or the 7th century, when you came in, you would recite the same creed every Sunday. Not to be boring, not to be monotonous, but because they knew this is our one shot to help our people memorize what's true and memorize what's real because they can't go home and read it for themselves. So the creeds come along to do that, but this list comes along as well so that they would internalize, they would sort of plant deeply these are the things that are going to tempt you and trip you up. These are the seven deadly sins. Now, um, the, the other reason for this list is to make it a priority in their life. To say, look, these are the big ones. We're not going to teach you to memorize hundreds and hundreds of commands. Okay, You're never going to memorize that much. We're going to teach you these seven, and there was a very specific reason. These seven sins are sometimes called the cardinal sins, not like the bird, the cardinal, and uh, not like the St. Louis baseball team, and not even like uh, an office in the church like bishop and cardinal, not that sort of cardinal. They were called cardinal sins because in Latin, cardinal means the hinge of a door. The hinge on which the door swings. The hinge on which the door opens. And they were saying, 
These seven are really, really important because all of the other sins that you might engage in, they're going to open to you if you, if you commit this sin. Like if you walk through this door. This is the cardinal sin, the door that then leads to all of the other sins. So the message of the list, the message of this series is keep the door closed. Right? You don't want to peek. Like you want to see what's behind the door. You don't want to open the door wide. You don't want to put your ear up to the door and hear what's on the other side. Like you want to stay away from the door. The door needs to stay closed because these seven sins open the door to all of the other sins. On this side of the door is God's protection and God's favor and God's blessings and God's plan for your life and my life and God's plan for our future. On the other side of this door are all of the things that can wreck what God wants for your future. All of the things that can wreck your relationships, wreck your marriage, wreck your career, wreck you morally. All of that's on the other side of the door. So keep this door closed because these seven things I'm going to tell you about they're the door that swings open to all of the other sins that could be committed. Now, here's the challenging part. These seven sins aren't actions. They aren't things that you do, right? If they were actions, you would know if the door was open, right? You would say, well, I did that. I opened the door, right? I committed that. That I opened the these aren't actions. They're not outward. They're not tangible. They're not physical. These seven sins are all inward. Because that's where sin starts. They're, they're actually not actions. They're seven desires on the inside of us. And for 1,600 years, Christians have been teaching one another. Christians have been saying... These seven desires, if you give in to one of them, if you give in to them, they will open the door to all of the actions that will follow. But the seven deadly sins themselves are not actions. They're desires that are on the inside of us. If you think about it, all sinful actions start with desires. I mean, that's, that's the genesis of all moral failures, all character failures, uh, cheating on a spouse. It doesn't start with an act. It starts with a desire way back down the road somewhere. Embezzling money, stealing, anger, or physical abuse. All of those things, they don't start with an act. They start with something on the inside of us. They start with a desire on the inside of us. Sort of what we're saying is, if, if you could go to the, the big failure of any person that you know, whether it's a famous person or a political person or celebrity or, or you or a neighbor or a relative, if you could go to the point where they failed morally, like where everything fell apart, everything disintegrated, and you could rewind the movie from that point, you would eventually back the movie up to a point where it all started in here. 
It didn't start out here. It didn't start with an action. It started on the inside with a desire that they didn't control, that they didn't contain, that they didn't get out of their life. And they opened the door. And weeks later, days later, months later, sometimes years later, that desire on the inside led to an action because that's what happened. The desire opens the door that leads to the action. It's true with every sin. Now, James writes about this. James uh, writes a book in the New Testament. James is actually the brother of Jesus. Um, obviously, he's the lesser known of the two brothers. Jesus is a little more famous than James. So I brought along a clip here just to catch you up to speed on who James was. You can watch this. I like reading the Bible. I was reading the Bible, found out, uh, found out Jesus had a little brother. Anybody know his name? James. When I read that, I was like, how much pressure was that? <laughs> Jesus, your big brother? How many times did you have to hear, why come you can't be more like Jesus, James? Because <laughs> you know, everybody probably thought that James could do the same thing Jesus could do, but he couldn't. He was just James. He wasn't James Christ. <laughs> Remember the wedding banquet? Jesus turned water into wine. Everybody was amazed, but they don't tell you about the next banquet. Jesus left early. They started running out of wine. Everybody looked at James. <laughs> it's like, man, last time this happened, your brother made some wine, dude. You, you're just going to stand there with your sandals on? You're not going <laughs> to... Can you make some Kool-Aid or something, man? You're not going to do anything. You know, James had problems just like any other kid had problems. He would try to follow his big brother around. So everywhere Jesus went, James followed him. That's what little brothers do. So if Jesus went there, so did James. I bet one time, James almost drowned. <laughs> oh, you just got that joke just now, didn't you? Jesus walked on water and James tried to exist. I'm sure James had problems. He would go to his parents with his problems. And his parents, especially his, his mom, was trying to throw him a bone once in a while. They'd pray over their food. They'd be like, Lord, we just thank you for this food in James' name. Okay, none of that's true, but I want to make sure you're still awake uh, about halfway through, so I want to make sure you're with us still. James was the brother of Jesus, um, and James writes in the New Testament about this idea of desire, and this is what he says in James chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. James believed that sin originates, the action of sin originates in sinful desire inside of us. And he puts the responsibility on us. He says, look, don't blame God. 
God's not doing that. And I think James would say, don't blame people around you. Like no one else drug you into this. Nobody else got you into this. There was something inside of you that wanted something, that desired something, and you followed it, and it created a problem for you. One of the hard parts of desires is sometimes they're hard to detect. They're really hard to detect in other people. You know, fortunately, we don't just walk around and go, okay, I know what you desire, I know what you desire, I know what you, like it's not flashing uh, on our forehead. James compares it to a woman being pregnant. He said, look, this is how desire is. Like when it's conceived, like when, it's, when it first starts, nobody, nobody really knows it's there. Like mom, mom knows, mom tells dad, they know, but then they don't tell anybody, right? She's not showing, like there's, there's no evidence that She's pregnant for a long time. Like There's this whole sort of in secret, in the dark, as this is growing inside of mom. And then there, you get to a point where there's no denying it, right? Like there's only so long you can hide being pregnant, right? If you're uh, a, a man, don't ever make the mistake of asking someone if they're pregnant. Like that's the worst question you can ask a woman. You, you go through this period where nobody can tell, and then all of a sudden it's undeniable. And in James' illustration, he says, look, if you, if you allow desire to grow to that point, to the point that it's birthed, and then you let it get full grown in you, it's, there's going to be devastating consequences. Like you, you can keep it secret for a while. You can hide it. You can convince yourself it's not there. But there's going to come a point where that desire is going to grow into sin in your life. And it's going to be painful. In one sense, we all have a general temptation toward disobedience. The Bible refers to this as the fall or our sin nature. That we we all have sin that we struggle with. We all have this general tug toward sin. But James seems to also say, look, there's some that are really specific to you. He uses the phrase, one's own evil desires. So responsibility, it's mine, it's in me, it's nobody else's fault, it's not God's fault, it's my own responsibility, but in in some ways also it's like my own desires. Because the things that create problems for me on the inside may not be exactly the things that create problems for you. The things that create problems for you, I I may not struggle with. We, We have some uniqueness in the tendencies of our desires, in the proportion of our specific desires. And James sort of owns that in this passage to say, yeah, there's going to be some that you're going to struggle with. You can think of it this way. Desire is the hinge that swings the door open to actions that are not just disobedient to God, but they're also detrimental to us. And we're at church, right? You're supposed to know that sin is bad at church, or at least say that, right? We get that. We get the pastor's going to talk about disobeying God. We get that. What James is saying, what the Bible's saying, what Christians for centuries have believed, is that there are consequences for me when I sin. Spiritual, definitely, but personal and relational in my future, sometimes my career. Like there are consequences, negative consequences. When I sin, when I allow desire to draw me away. Now, desire, I, I said earlier, desire is a hard thing 
Because desire often feels good. It's, this is something I want. And if I want it, then it must be good. Um, it seems normal. Like I desire this thing. It, it even seems at times involuntary. Like I, well, I didn't create this desire. Like I just have this desire. Like I wasn't trying to want that relationship. I wasn't trying to want her, him. I wasn't trying to want this thing. It was just in me. Like it was, I, di- I didn't do anything. But here's what the Bible teaches about desire. The Bible teaches that you and I will feel certain desires in, over the course of our life. And we may not even necessarily choose to feel that desire. And yet, at the same time, the Bible says, you cannot indulge every desire that you feel. You and I will feel impulses. You and I will feel desires toward things. And the Bible says, you are still responsible for putting boundaries around that desire parameters around that desire. You are not free to indulge every desire that you feel in your life. And in some ways, that's a little bit contrary from what we hear in our culture. Quite often, our culture says, well, look, if you, if you really have that desire, then you deserve to fulfill it. Desires sometimes feel justifiable, right? Well, I deserve to fulfill this because I feel this is going to make me happy. And the Bible steps in and says, sorry. You're going to feel desires, and you're not to indulge some of them. You're not to just give in to them. Now, the Bible doesn't say that all desire is wrong. The Bible doesn't say that all desire is evil. The Bible just says, James says, there are evil desires. And evil desires are different from healthy desires in this way. The seven deadly sins are all misplaced or mismanaged desires. That's the separation. They're misplaced desires or mismanaged desires. There are good desires. There are things we should want. There are things we should pursue. There are things we should find fulfillment in. But the deadly sins fall into two categories. One category is we just desire the wrong things. That's the misplaced category. Misplaced desire. What I want, the desire that's growing in me, is for something that God has already said no to. That God has very clearly said, this is not a desire you should fulfill. You might have it as a part of your fallen sinful nature. You might feel impulse. You might feel desire for this. You are not to indulge that desire. So some of the seven deadly sins are describing desiring the wrong things. And then the other aspect of the seven deadly sins is when we desire the right thing in the wrong proportion. It's a good thing. It may be a needed thing. It may be a necessary thing. In some cases, it's a very healthy thing. But when I desire it outside of the boundaries that God put in place, then it's not healthy anymore. When I desire it outside of the proportion, the parameters, the commands that God has given for that thing, then it's deadly to me. Let's let's talk about that word. He picked seven because these are the seven desires that open the door to all the other sins. Why why deadly? Why do we call it deadly? Because that's a pretty bold word, right? I mean, that's a... 
That's a pretty in-your-face word, the seven deadly sins. I don't mean, as we talk about the seven deadly sins, I don't mean that if you commit one of these, you're going to get struck down immediately by God, like lightning bolt, run over by a bus. That's That's not what I mean. That's not what Christians have meant for 1,600 years. It's not like you are about to die. I also don't mean that if you commit this sin, then God can't forgive you. Like, that's it. That's over. You're done. You're going straight to hell. Don't collect $200. Don't pass go. Just your highway to hell. You're going right there. There's no way to avoid it. That's not what I mean by deadly sin. Because that's not true. God's grace, God's forgiveness. The moment you put your faith in Him, like God's grace and forgiveness can handle anything. Like all of your past sins, all of the past times you messed up, all of the present times you messed up, all of the future times you're ever going to mess up, Jesus' death on the cross and your faith in that, your trust in Jesus' grace and forgiveness is enough for all of those. So that's not going to go away. Think of deadly like this. When someone dies, it cuts them off from all of the potential and possibility of their life had they continued living. It's one of the hard things about losing someone close to you. Is that when you go through special days, they're not there, right? Like they missed this special moment. They missed this wedding. They missed this, this birthday. It would have been this anniversary. Right? So you, you get cut off from all of the potential and possible good things that you could have experience in life. We sometimes say about people, their life was cut short. But I mean, in some way, everybody's life is cut short. Right? And no matter how long you live or, or when you die... Everybody's life gets cut short and there are things that the people who love you wish you would have enjoyed that you're not able to enjoy. Similar to that, I'm using the word deadly to mean these are the sins that open the door to all the other sins. And as a result, I can get cut off from the full potential and possibility that God wants to work in my life. Like God has a plan and a purpose of good things and future and, and, and the movement of His Spirit in my life. And when I choose to yield to sin, then I get cut off from some of that. I get cut off from the work of the Spirit. I don't lose my salvation. I'm, I'm not going to hell because I, I, I trust Jesus. But I am potentially short-circuiting what God wanted to do in the rest of my life. That my actions have now messed up. That's what I mean by death. To be, to be cut off from that potential that God was going to work in my life or God's going to work in your life. Seven deadly sins. That leaves that word. Which is not a real popular word. I get it. It's like sin's not real popular. A lot of people don't like to talk about the idea that there is right and wrong, like there is yes and no, or that God would have a right and wrong in mind, that God would have a yes and a no, that God would have thou shalt and thou shalt not, that God would be concerned with our, beha- our desires and eventually our behavior, that God would be concerned with that, and that God would say specifically, you should live this way, you should not Live this way. I know that's not a comfortable topic for a lot of people, but it's true. I mean, the God that we serve, who loves us immensely, 
very clearly in his word, says about some things. This is great. Like, enjoy this. Like, within the right parameters, like, enjoy all of this. This is a no. This is a no. And it's always going to be a no. There is right and wrong in the mind and heart of God. He's a gracious God and a loving God and a merciful God. And he's a just God. If you're a parent, you should get this. I mean, you should understand this clearly. Because sometimes you say no to your kids. Not because you're mean or cruel, not because you're trying to ruin their life, not because you're no fun and you don't get it, because you know, man, that can have terrible consequences on your future and your life. And I don't want that for you. I want good for you. I want the best for you. So yeah, as your dad, I step in sometimes and I say, no, because I love you. And the Bible is filled with commands from God, where out of His love for us, He steps in and says, that's a no. That's a no. You, you can't indulge that desire. You can't go down that path. So as difficult as that word is for some, it's still a necessary word. There is sin. And God has said that is a no. And no matter how we rationalize or justify or no matter what we feel about it, it's a no. And, and let me just be honest. In order for anything else I say in this series to benefit you or benefit me, you got to get okay with that. You got to be okay with there is a God and God sometimes says no. Because we're going to talk about those over the next, the next seven Sundays. Now, couple more things. <clears throat> Just suggestions as we launch into this series. We are obviously going to talk about seven deadly sins. I don't think that any of you are going to hear this list and go, oh my gosh, I'm doing all of those. Like I'm seven for seven. Like a hundred percent. Like A plus in the worst way. That I've Okay, like if you're seven for seven, I'm not sure I can help you. At the end, like, I'll get you to somebody who can help you. I'm not sure I can help you if you're seven for seven. Here's what's going to happen, though. We're going to get into this series, and we're going to start taking up these seven deadly sins. And you're, you're going to, about two or, three of those, two or three of these seven, you're going to go, I don't, really, I don't really have a problem with that. And you're not in denial, you know, it's like some of us are going to try that. Some of us are going to say, no, that's not me. No, that's you. All right. I'm not talking about denial. I'm talking about reality, just your personal makeup, your, your background, your personality, you know, who your parents were, whatever the reason, God's grace, whatever the reason, there are going to be two or three of, those, of these and you're going to go, I don't know, that's, that's, that's really not in my nature to struggle with that, but I'm going to pray for people around me because... There are people that that's a struggle, and so I'm going to pray for them on this day. And you're going to walk out of here feeling great, right? Because we would have spent a whole day talking about something that you have no problem with. That's going to happen maybe two or three times. And then another two or three weeks, 
you're going to come in, and I'm going to start talking. You're going to go, yeah, sometimes, yeah, yeah. There's been a couple times I've lost it on that one. Like, yeah, that's not all the time, but sometimes when I was younger, you know, every once in a while, trying to, with my husband, yeah, you know, it's good. You're going to have a, it's not all the time, but yeah, sometimes. And then there's going to be one, maybe two, probably not three, but maybe and you're going to, we're going to start talking and you're going to go, if you're honest, if you're honest, you're going to go all the time. You just are. I am, me too. All the time. That was a struggle for me when I was a teenager. That was a struggle for me in college. I got married. That was still a struggle for me. I'm now in my 30s or my 40s or my 50s or my 60s or my 70s. And still... I look in the mirror, and every day I know that one is a tough one for me. So, so here's my suggestion. Would you be honest over these next seven Sundays? Just be honest. You don't have to be honest with me. Right? You don't have to put it on the connection card. Ah, that was mine, Pastor. <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> We're not going to post these on Facebook, right? It's like, no, I'm not talking about be honest with me. If you want to, if you want to confess to me, then that's fine. I, you know, I can pray with you. I, I'm just saying, be honest with you. Be honest with you when we go through these seven. So that's my first suggestion. My second caution slash suggestion is, for every one of these seven, there's like a really big sin that goes with it. Like a really big deal breaker, mess up your marriage, get you on the evening news. Like There's like a really big... Whoo! And you don't need me to define what it is. When I read you the list in just a minute, you're going to know for every one. Yeah, that one, that one. I know what that one is. So there's like this really big one. My encouragement to you is, is can you push past the really big one? Because all of these, they manifest themselves in sort of secondary, smaller ways that we don't all always identify. And so what I'm saying is, don't just check the box if you haven't done the big one. Like if, if you haven't been on the 6 o'clock news because of that, that's not necessarily a check that, that I'm okay with that one. Push, push a little deeper into the details of these. The, the writer of Hebrews uh, talks about God's word as a really sharp sword. And, and in that explanation, he says, it, it pierces, God's word pierces to our thoughts and motives. Like it gets down to the nitty gritty, right? It gets down right, right down to the bare essentials. And that's what I'm going to ask you to do as we walk through this. Don't give yourself an out because you, don't, you haven't done the really big one. Look beyond your first impression of each one of these. Because your first impression is that big one. Then there's a lot of other, maybe more subtle ways that you could be guilty. I can be guilty of some of these. You want me to just give them to you? Okay. You've already Googled them, so this will be repetitious. Here we go. Here's seven. Greed. Envy. Anger. Lust. Gluttony. Sloth. And pride. The cardinal sins, the ones that open the door. They're not actions, they're desires. There's th stuff that's going on inside of me that I want. And if I indulge it, 
it's going to open the door to a lot of catastrophe in my life. We are on the front end of what more liturgical churches call Lent. Uh, Lent actually starts on Valentine's Day, which is hilarious to me for a lot of reasons. But Lent starts this year on Valentine's Day. Lent is the 40 days that lead up to Good Friday every year. 40 days, not counting Sundays, that lead up to Good Friday. Now, again, let me me be totally honest here. Lent's not in the Bible either. Lent's not like a command of the Bible that we're supposed to observe Lent. It was a a creation later on by Christian leaders, much like the seven deadly sins list. And if I'm being totally honest, I think a lot of the contemporary observation of Lent is misguided for a lot of reasons that I'm out of time, we don't have time to go into. But the, the idea behind Lent is leading up to Easter, a period of confession and repentance and self-examination. Like before we rush into celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the grave, let's spend some time reminding ourselves that we needed Jesus to rise from the grave. Like we couldn't battle this stuff by ourselves. Like you and I can't overcome these desires all by ourselves. When we get to Easter, we're going to be celebrating Jesus. We needed Easter. Like we needed you to save us. And Lent, in its original intent, caused Christians to examine their lives and, and confess what the Spirit shows them is in their life that shouldn't be. And so. I invite you into that process, not Lent specifically, but as we go through these seven Sundays, that you would just be open to where the Holy Spirit is going to say, wow, I have some things for you. I can't do them because this door is open. Can you close that door? Can you let me give you the strength to close that desire that you keep having that's going to lead you into catastrophe? Because I want so much for you. And so I want to close with giving you an opportunity. This is totally up to you, but I'm going to pray. And at the beginning of this, this series, can we just make our hearts available to God? Would you, would you do that? Would you just say, God, this, this may be painful, but, but I'm going to make my life an open book to you. You already see it anyway. So I'm just going to open up my heart to you over these seven Sundays. And let you work in me. Would you bow your heads? You close your eyes. It, um, sometimes it helps if you just hold your hands out, palms up, or, or they can be on your knee, or, or just right out in front of you. Just palms up to God as we pray, just symbolizing that, God, I want to receive what you have for me over these seven weeks, even if it's painful even if I have to make some changes. God, here we are. Palms up, hearts open. We all have our own desires, specific in some ways to each one of us, similar in other ways to other people. God, we don't want to leave that door open. We don't want to leave the desire door open that could grow and mature 
into actions that could wreck our relationships, that could wreck our future, that could, that could limit what you want to do in our lives going forward. So we, we, we give you our hearts to examine over these next seven Sundays. Help us to be honest with ourselves and honest with you. That you could purify like gold. That you could strip away anything that isn't what you want. And make us more like you. God, we can't do this without your spirit. This is not human effort. This is not us trying really hard to be better. God, this has to be empowered by your spirit to make us into the image of Jesus. And we ask that you would do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing this song together.